0: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by former Secretary of Defense William Perry and the Director of Policy at Plowshares Fund, Tom Colina, to discuss their new co-authored book, The Buttoned, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. This book was published in 2020 by Ben Bella Press, And it is a somewhat um, frightening um, but important uh, analysis of the current state of our nuclear policy and nuclear structure in terms of weapons, um, and also some thoughts about ways to potentially change some of those policies and processes. But I'm going to let Secretary Perry and Tom Kalina talk to us a little bit about that and to tell us how they came to this particular project so, I'd like to welcome former Secretary of Defense William Perry and Tom Colina to the New Books in Political Science podcast to talk to us about their new book, The Button.
1: Okay, Tom,
0: it's all yours.
1: Wow. Hi, I'm Tom Colina. I'm the policy director at the Plowshares Fund, which is a national security foundation in Washington, D.C., and it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Um, and and now Secretary Perry, can t- just tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Uh, this is Bill Perry. I'm a professor emeritus in the School of Engineering at Stanford University. Uh, prior to that, I was the Secretary of Defense, the 19th Secretary of Defense for the Clinton administration, and prior to that, I was the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering for the Carter administration.
0: And, and you, you yourself as you note in the book, have been engaged with topics around the nuclear weapons for the long long stretch of your career in public service.
2: Essentially my whole career, but the most dramatic part earlier in my career was I was a advisor to President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that gave me an exposure to nuclear dangers that's absolutely unique and which I never want to do again. But we came very, very close to a nuclear catastrophe at that time.
0: And the two of you came to this project um, from different avenues um, and from inside and outside of government uh, as well. So if you could talk a little bit about how you came together, which is also part of the drive in terms of the narrative within the book itself.
1: Sure. I'll I'll start and and then Bill can jump in. I think Bill and I both realize that it takes uh, different vantage points and 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 different uh, approaches to changing nuclear policy. And of course, Bill's approach is working uh, from the inside, uh, and and of course established his his credibility and expertise as a Secretary of Defense and other senior positions. Um, but it, changing policy, um, I think we've discovered, is both an inside and outside job, uh, particularly with nuclear weapons policy. You really need public support uh, to create the kind of political will that you need to make change, which is what I've been doing for for 30 plus years, is working on the outside, working with Congress, working with the public to explain the need to change US nuclear policy. And I think where Bill and I came together was this realization that we needed to work together to make real change and that we needed to somehow Focus the issues to make them more understandable and clear for the public, which is which is how we came to focusing on the subject of the button, which is really looking at the issue of presidential sole authority, which is you know why do we give one fallible human, the president of the United States, um, the unilateral power to launch U.S. nuclear weapons, and therefore to destroy civilization. Uh, It's a a huge godlike power that we give one fallible human. And we saw an opportunity with President Trump to raise the issue, because I think a lot of people see President Trump uh, as impulsive, as not a thoughtful decision maker, um, and maybe as the last person in the world that should really have this authority. Uh, Yet he has it, and every U.S. president in the nuclear age has had this power. Um, and so it's, a, it's an issue we want to raise. We want to ask the question. At the same time, we want to make it clear that it's not, the problem is not just President Trump. Uh, previous presidents like President Nixon, who was known to drink in office, uh, have raised this question. And, and even a perfectly rational, uh, highly functioning president, uh, we would say, is, is unfit for this job. That In other words, nobody is fit for having to decide the fate of the world in just a few minutes which is the, the untenable position that U.S. policy puts them in.
0: And and in this regard, I mean, you, you start the book with a, a kind of um, simulation of this, this problem. Like, does the president really have to consult with anybody? Um, should the president consult with anybody? Should the president possibly step back? Um, and and you sort of trace some of this idea with regard to this concentration of uh, authority in one person, also at, as being at odds with the constitutional structure that the founders laid out in 1787. Um, and so for a lot of the folks who are considering, um, you know, sort of this idea, it's a question about presidential power not just the nuclear power, but presidential power concentrated in one person.
1: That's right. I mean, uh, the Congress of the United, the, the Constitution, sorry, of the United States uh, makes it quite clear that Congress shall declare war, and presidents shall implement it. Uh, in this case, if we give presidents sole authority to use nuclear weapons and start nuclear war, we see that as the ultimate declaration of war. Uh, so we're, we're misusing the, the congressional uh, constitutional <clears throat> authority here by giving presidents um, that much power. And the real danger that we see, and i uh, like Bill to, to talk about this a bit more, is the danger of false alarms. Um, that if we have a false alarm, which we've had before, of incoming attacks, uh, giving that kind of authority to a president who is uh, then motivated to make that decision very quickly, um, can lead to uh, blundering into nuclear war by mistake, which is, I think, we could all agree is the, is the worst disaster imaginable. Uh, but Bill has seen this up close and personal, if you will, by actually having, uh, having experienced a false alarm. So maybe, Bill, uh, you want to go in that direction. Uh, let me start off by noting that the s-
2: story in the preface of the book It does illustrate the danger of having one person make this decision. But even more importantly, it illustrates the importance, the danger of making a fast decision, a quick decision. Our whole policy is set up to allow the president to make a decision to launch in just a few minutes, in just a few minutes. Why is that? It's because we have assumed that the danger is a surprise attack, a bolt out of the blue, so to speak. And that it would be directed first of all at our ground based missiles, our ICBMs. And therefore, we are give the President the option of launching those missiles before the incoming, presumed incoming missiles strike. And that means we are set up so that we can, from the moment of the alert, the President can actually launch a retaliatory strike in just a few minutes. This quick launch is a danger in and of itself, beyond the danger of sole authority. And we have that because we have wrongly presumed what the threat is. We assume that the threat is a surprise attack from Russia, which is exceedingly unlikely. And because of that, we set up policies which make us more vulnerable to blundering in a nuclear war, which is much more likely.
0: And the, the policies that, that you note know, that we we have set up in terms of blundering in, can you talk a little bit about those themselves?
2: Well, the I the two policies that are most dangerous are the giving the president the sole authority to launch and related to that is the giving giving him the capability to make a quick launch in a matter of a few minutes. Now the the, the danger, particular danger of that quick launch is that he might make that decision in his few minutes in error. And the most likely example of that is, he, is that the alert that he gets turns out to be a false alarm. And there have been about six false alarms in history that I'm aware of, two of them which I personally lived through. And I will relate that one too, just to give you an example of what the problem is and why this problem is so seared into my memory. When I was the Under Secretary of Defense during the Cold War, Under Secretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, I was awoken by a phone call at three o'clock in the morning. And I picked up the phone, the voice on the other end himself, to identify himself as the general who was the watch officer at the North American Air Defense Command. And the first thing he told me was that his computer was showing 200 ICBMs on the way from the Soviet Union. To the United States. This was during the Cold War, of course. Well, this was one, for one horrifying moment, I thought that the catastrophe that we had narrowly avoided in the Cuban Missile Crisis was about to occur. But he quickly went on to add that he had concluded it was a false alarm. Why was he calling me? He was calling me because I was the technical person in the Pentagon, and he wanted me to figure out, help him figure out what had gone wrong with his computers. It took us, by the way, a couple of days to figure out there had been a failure in, a, one, of, in a, one of the microchips in the computer, and that failure was causing the computer to give a d- dramatically false reading. We have had other failures, which were not technical failures, but human error, where an operator, when he new operator came the night, he had to put in the operating new operating tape for the computer and he mistakenly instead put in a training tape. And so what we were seeing on the computer was a simulation, a very realistic simulation of an attack. So humans do err, machines do err, and therefore we have false alarms. So far, we have been lucky. We have survived all those false alarms. The one I first described to you, we were within a few minutes of giving the president's decision to launch within a few minutes, within a few minutes. So it was very close, a very close call.
0: And so we have, you know, not a lot has changed in terms of the policy, which is one of the points that you make that the both of you make throughout the book is that some of the more recent presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, both sort of talked about possibly changing some of these processes and procedures around, but not much has happened. So we've gone from the Cold War to not being in the Cold War anymore, but the policies have remained in place. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, Lily, that's a great question. And I think it's one of the of the questions we try to explore in the book, uh, looking really at 75 years of the bomb, uh, the the entire history. And and certainly, as, since the end of the Cold War, um, these policies should have changed. But as you point out, they did not. And I think part of the reason for that is that these policies, these quick launch, uh, get ready for a surprise attack policies, became the default. They came the, they became the default setting, like the the settings on your phone that may be difficult to figure out how to change. But in in policy circles, um, those settings get get established, and they're very difficult to change uh, because people's careers are based on those settings. Uh, you know, billions of dollars are spent around those settings, um, jobs, uh, hundreds of jobs, thousands of jobs are dependent on on those policies. And so the only way to change those default settings uh, is to have at least three things. Uh, One is you need presidential attention from the top. It's very hard to change these policies from the bottom up, uh, nearly impossible, I would say. And so you need a president who comes into office Uh, and sees this as a problem and is willing to spend time on it. Uh, But even that is not enough. You need a public that is engaged and informed to continually put pressure on that president um, to make good on on promises and better policies because presidents get in office and they just get distracted. There are so many issues uh, competing for a president's time that without public pressure, demanding the president stay focused uh, it's almost inevitable that they will they will drift and unless you have those two things presidential attention and public support you will not have the political will of the system to make change happen and this is really what we saw for example in the obama administration where president obama came in with very good intentions and got quite a bit done uh, on nuclear policy. For example, the New START Treaty, which reduced US and Russian arsenals, and the Iran nuclear deal, which, which froze the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, but in many ways, uh, he took his eye off the ball, got distracted. And, and going back to the end of the Cold War, since the end of the Cold War, it's been very difficult to get the public attention to these issues that is needed to keep presidential focus. So I would say it's it's a combination of those three things: presidential attention, public support, and and ongoing, sustained political will.
2: Lily, let me add to what Thomas said here. We need this public attention, but it, we don't have it because the public does not understand the danger. So the first thing to do is to educate the public as to what the danger is. When I became fully aware of that many years ago. I tried to address it by writing a book on the subject, which was My Journey at the Nuclear Brink, which dealt with this problem and tried to educate people as to what the dangers were. And while this book was an academic success, uh, it was not really read by the general public. So it did not accomplish the purpose of informing the general public. So when Tom came to me with a proposal to write a book on this subject, and the point of the book was to make it in language and in terms and in the illustrations that were accessible to the general public, I became quite interested. So when Tom and I teamed up to do this, the purpose of the book was to write a book which is in language that the general public would understand and that conceivably could be used then as an important tool in educating the public on this dangerous problem.
0: And I, I having read through the book, I would say that you did exactly that. I think it's a very accessible book. And I think it pretty much lays out a lot of the problems that you are sort of outlining in terms of what the public doesn't necessarily know about the sort of current policy situation. And I think this is also the Cold War ended. And so we all thought, hey, the nuclear, you know, threat is over except for like rogue nations like Iran or North Korea. But in fact, as you outline throughout the book, no, <laughs> there's still a problem. Right.
1: And, and in fact, you know, that public perception was um, aided by real progress, right? I mean, during the Cold War, uh, both sides, both the United States uh, and then the Soviet Union had uh, tens of thousands of nuclear weapons. And those arsenals had been reduced uh, by 85% or so. So that today, the United States and Russia uh, have somewhere around, you know, twelve thousand weapons combined, and that's huge progress. Uh, but what we have to realize is that's still enough to destroy the world. So the job is not done. And because the public attention has shifted, as you said, you and many others um, perceive that that the problem essentially went away. But because we've lost the public focus, it's very difficult for any political leader. Uh, to find the political will to make the change, and and the reason that's so difficult is because there's so much money that is pulsing through the system. You know, roughly fifty billion dollars per year of federal funding going to these programs, both maintaining the weapons we have and building new replacement weapons. Uh, that's the kind of money that really demands attention in the political system, and and without. Uh, the high level and public attention, it's its simply uh, too hard to change direction, as, as we've found, in a significant way.
2: Let me add to that that President Obama, at one time when he was in office, toward the end of his time in office, was planning to make a unilateral decrease in the American nuclear arsenal, down to 1,000 nuclear weapons. He was roundly criticized for that, and in the end backed away from doing it. But at, even at a, thousand, even at a thousand nuclear weapons, and even if Russia had followed, and we each had a thousand nuclear weapons, that's still more than enough to destroy the whole world. And yet, even at those relatively high levels, there were great objections and enough, sufficient objections that the president actually backed off his, his, what he really wanted to do.
0: And, and as you also have noted in the book, Obama sort of said, came into office talking about potentially trying to disarm nu- nuclearly in the United States and with regard to sort of not only getting rid of them, but sort of urging others to do the same. But as you also note, when presidents come into office, they have many things that they need to deal with. Um. And because we're not in the Cold War, it seems like nuclear weapons are not something that presidents really pay all that much attention to. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Yes. When the president president came into office, within a month after he came into office, he made his famous speech in Prague. I speak clearly and with conviction, the commitment of the United States to seek the peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons. That was what he came in hoping to do. His legacy, as he left, though, was aside from the New START Treaty, which is a modest achievement, was a planned program to completely rebuild the nuclear arsenal, which President Trump is now implementing. This is going to be a huge, huge expense, and it's going to involve complete rebuilding of all the elements of the Cold War nuclear weapons. We are completely entering a new nuclear arms race.
0: And in that context, who are we in the race with? Are we in the race with Russia?
2: As, it's seen that by uh, the United States president and by the Russian president that we are in a race with each other. They see it that way. And each one of them has vowed that we will, we will win that race. President Trump has vowed that. President Putin has vowed that. So those are the dynamics for an escalating arms race.
0: And so my next question is also about the sort of next section of the book, because you, uh, you both talk about the first section of the book, the wrong threat, um, and, and that the, essentially the, the first strike capability idea is, is problematic conceptually at this point as well. Um, and who wants to actually possibly have the capacity to do a second strike, Um, but the next section of the book is about the new nuclear policy. Um, and, and so what are we talking about in terms of the new nuclear policy besides possibly getting rid of the weapons?
1: Sure. So, so we are proposing that the next president, um, because we don't have a lot of hope that the current president can do this, that the next president would shift us policy Uh, away from focusing on this wrong threat of a a very unlikely surprise attack from Russia Uh, and focus instead on the much more likely danger of blundering into nuclear war by mistake. And so there there are three key things that we would like to see the next president do. Uh, One is to get out of this sole authority trap. And instead of of keeping that uh, authority to launch nuclear weapons to himself that the president should share that authority with Congress, which we think is more in line with the constitution. Uh, second and related is that the United States and the president in this case should declare that the United States would never use nuclear weapons first, uh, that there's no rational reason why the United States would ever want to start nuclear war. So we should make that very clear that the only, the only rationale, the only use for nuclear weapons is to deter their use By others, and so in that under that uh, principle, the United States would not use nuclear weapons first, and we would want to take steps to convince other countries that we're serious about that. One of the steps we could take is to retire our land-based ballistic missiles, known as ICBMs, because these are the most likely weapons we would use in a first strike, Uh, and these are the weapons that are most vulnerable to being launched um, when as they're on alert. Uh, in response to what could be a false alarm. Um, So we would like to have these weapons be retired. And if you did those three things, uh, eliminate sole authority, uh, announce no first use, and retire our land-based missiles, you could go a long way to reducing this threat of accidental nuclear war, which is really uh, the main focus of the book.
0: And In this regard, the idea of sharing the authority with Congress, which again gets into this question of the conceptual sort of context of understanding how the president has the nuclear, quote, football um, and has been given this power by Congress to, to authorize the use of nuclear weapons in first strike or retaliatory, that that's, that's really embedded in the thinking of many Americans. Um, and and there's not a lot of understanding that if you change from a sort of first strike, then it's a lot easier to potentially share this authority, much like the Constitution sort of lays out, with Congress. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that sort of concept that Americans are going to have to potentially shift their thinking and understanding around?
1: Yes. And let me, let me go at it in two ways. One is to change the way people think about where sole authority came from. Because a lot of people think that sole authority was originated um, because of the risk of a, of a, of a first strike um, from Russia. In fact, if you go back to President Truman, who of course was the, the only U.S. president to use the bomb and the first U.S. president that had it, when President Truman uh, was in the at the end of, of World War II and the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki 75 years ago, uh, he, he was unprepared for the devastation that resulted. Um, he really didn't have a good sense of what to expect. And when he saw civilian casualties and, and the awesome destruction, he determined that um, that he wanted to make sure these weapons were not used again unless he specifically authorized it. So this was an effort by President Truman to take the bomb out of military hands and put put the bomb in civilian control, which we completely think was a great idea and, and applaud him for it. The problem is that he didn't he didn't share that control with other civilians. he kept it for himself. And Congress did not give the president this power. The president, in this case, President Truman, took this power for himself and Congress never complained about it, although they should have because it really um, undermined the Constitution. Um, so, so point one is, is that the first president who took this power did it to separate military and civilian control, uh, which I think is an important point. The other point for people to understand is that they usually say, "Well, we have to have presidential sole authority because the decision has to be made quickly within minutes." And if you share that authority with Congress, it could take hours or days. And that's exactly right. And, And but one of the points that we're trying to say is there is no rush. I mean, if there really is a launch coming from Russia, us launching a retaliation will not stop that launch. So it is much more important. To wait and make sure it's not an accident. If, you, if your goal is to prevent nuclear war, and that should be our goal here, uh, our, our goal should be to prevent any kind of nuclear war. Uh, and that includes launching a nuclear war by mistake. So if we see our, if our systems tell us that a launch is coming in, the most important thing is to wait and see if that attack is real. Um, and there's nothing to be gained by launching quickly. And in fact, there's a lot to be lost because if it's a false alarm, you've just started nuclear war by mistake.
2: Implicit in what Tom is saying is that if it happens to really be a launch and most of our ground-based missiles are destroyed by that launch, we still have the capability in our submarine forces, not to mention our Obama forces, of completely destroying Russia. So the, the, the retaliation Still is in place, and the deterrence, therefore, is still in place.
0: So, the elimination of land-based nuclear weapons would not necessarily eliminate uh, it, at this, in this, at this juncture, the capacity of the United States to launch a retaliatory strike using nuclear weapons.
2: No, we would put our, That's correct. We would put our resources in different directions. Some of the resources we would save by not. Maintaining ICBMs by not building the new generation of ICBMs would be to improve our research and development in anti submarine warfare, make sure that our submarines continue to remain invulnerable, and also having a backup plan for our bombers so that in, in case of heightened emergencies, we could put them on a heightened alert, as we had them at one time during the Cold War. So there are many things we can do alternatively if we see the situation getting dangerous. But we, a fundamental position is that our submarine force alone has the capability of giving us deterrence because it has by itself the capability of, of uh, responding to any attack. Indeed, one submarine alone, one submarine, has enough nuclear weapons to basically destroy the, sort of, the Russia as a function in society.
0: And, and so in this, in this way, as you're talking about it, you're, you're talking about, as you say, Tom, these sort of three shifts in terms of changing around the way that the nuclear authority works in the United States. Um, But I also, I, I think about this as a political scientist who studies the presidency and presidential power. And, and this is a really substantial, conceptual shift for American citizens to consider in terms of the power of the president as commander in chief with regard to the authority in terms of nuclear weapons. And, and you know, our, our popular culture is always wrapped around these images of, you know, presidents making these decisions, and, you know, from what we learn oftentimes about presidents after they're in office, that, you know, as, as Secretary Perry pointed out, there have been these sort of false alarms where, um, you know, there's been the question of, do we need to launch a retaliatory attack? Um, that's a big shift.
2: Let me uh, point out that the big shift really is a shift in giving the president the authority to start war. Because prior to that, <clears throat> prior to Truman setting up this policy, any time a president wanted to declare war, he had to go to Congress. President Roosevelt, when he declared war on Japan and Germany in response to Pearl Harbor, went to the Congress to declare the war. He did not declare it himself. So that's really the big shift, but we've gotten used to the fact so since the beginning of the Cold War, we've got used to the fact that the president really has the authority to declare war, despite what the constitution says.
0: And and that's absolutely my, my students every semester. I ask them, when was the last declared war? You know, they say Vietnam, they maybe think about Korea, they talk about the war on drugs <laughs> and, and and they're like, Really? World War II? And I said, Yeah. Um, so you're right that it was the case, but in the nuclear period, in the Cold War period, we've seen this shift that many people have become so used to.
2: But a part of the reason for this shift, Lily, was the belief that first the Soviet Union and now Russia was planning to and had the capability to make a surprise attack, a bolt out of the blue, on the United States. And so our policies have been built up on the assumption that that was a threat. But that is totally, totally unrealistic. I have, when I was secretary and undersecretary, I met with hundreds of Russian political figures from the president and the minister of defense to the minister of foreign affairs and so on. And and the many years since then, I've I've made track tour, unofficial visits to Russia and, and talked with many thousands of Russians. If I've learned anything, it is the Russians' Are not suicidal, and the Russians are not stupid. There's no likelihood really that they're going to launch a surprise attack against the United States, knowing that it's going to lead to the destruction of their own country
0: and thus the the first section of the book is essentially the wrong threat because. Yes. We've been conceptualizing a solution to something that's not the right threat.
2: Yeah, All these policies we're talking about and we've become used to and think uh, on on the norm are really quite abnormal because they're they're based on the wrong threat and they're based on the, the wrong assumption about what's going to happen in a war. And therefore, we have to have a very rapid response and we have to have the president then, within minutes, be able to launch a nuclear war. That's, so it's all tied around this false theory of what the threat is and the belief then that we have to deal with a very, very rapid response. It's that quick launch, that quick response, which gets us into so much trouble.
0: And this is also not unlike the thinking around some of the controversy with regard to extracting intelligence and information from people we have arrested who may know of terrorist attempts, um, the you know the famous ticking time bomb scenarios, um, and so we have in in a lot of these contexts these kind of wrong threat analyses, and then policies that are directed in the wrong direction. And so, in the book, you both talk about the fact that Congress recently held some hearings. <laughs> on changing some of this around, um, as well as that being one of the dimensions of sort of solving some of the problem and going in a different direction. Can you talk about that? Sure. A bit? I mean,
1: one of the interesting thing about those, those hearings, and these were the first hearings held on presidential authority, uh, in many years, uh, and they were inspired by president Trump, um, having this authority and and there being bipartisan concern about about President Trump holding this power. And one useful thing that came out of that hearing, it was there was bipartisan agreement that yes, the president holds this power because there are some that, that like to question that as well to say, oh, well, you know, it has, it has to go through the Secretary of Defense or it has to go through the Joint Chiefs of Staff or whatever. No, it really, it's, it's really up to the president Uh, The president can make this decision and implement that decision within a matter of minutes. Um, But when it came to the question of changing policy, you know, as I said before, there's a lot of uh, money, jobs, prestige, careers that are tied up in the current system and the way the policies work. And so when you start talking about changing presidential authority, you start going down what many perceive to be a slippery slope towards other policies, uh, first use whether we need ICBMs, uh, whether we need nuclear weapons at all, that kind of thing. And it makes people very nervous who are promoting the maintenance of, of this $50 billion a year system. And so what we found is that, is that people in the military uh, structure started saying things like, oh, well, you know, if you had a president like Trump who gave an order that we thought was illegitimate, uh, people in the system would simply say no, and they would refuse to carry out the order. And the intent of this was to make to reassure the public that don't worry, we're not going to blunder into nuclear war. It's going to all be very you know thought out and 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 by the book. Um, but that simply isn't true. I mean, you know, the 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 good news is that people who are in the military, who are in this system, are trained to follow orders. And if an order is given, uh, the high likelihood is that that order will be carried out because if it were a real crisis, you would not want a lot of debate about these things. You would want things to be carried out quickly. But in this case, you don't want that. Um, And in this case, you know, I think the whole point we're trying to say is that we don't want a quick launch, we don't want a quick decision process. Uh, But under the current policy, if there were a decision, uh, that decision would be carried out quickly by the, uh, the chain of command. And of course, there's always some chance that someone uh, in the system will refuse to do it, but that's, you can't hope on that. You know, hope is not a policy. Uh, that is not enough of a uh, reassurance that that we should not uh, think about changing the policy itself. Um, and so the hearing re- reinforced for me anyway, that we have to change this policy as soon as we can.
0: And- As I I mentioned this to Secretary Perry before we started recording, that reading through most of the book made me very stressed out. Um, And in the middle of a pandemic, you know, we're all a little bit stressed out. Um, But that the last, the very last section of the book, um, part three, Beyond the Bomb, you have a number of sort of ideas and proposals for changing some of this. And we've talked about some of them already in terms of sharing um, the power with Congress um, so that it slows down the process. Can the two of you talk a little bit about some of the other proposals to change our thinking and change the process?
1: Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in just with one, which is that, you know, in, in, in addition to rebuilding um, the entire U.S. nuclear arsenal and, and Russia is rebuilding their arsenal as well, which is getting us in this new arms race dynamic. In addition to all that new building, we're having the arms control treaties uh, get, get torn apart before our very eyes, um, which is a very dangerous combination and, and adds to this new arms race dynamic. Uh, for example, the New START treaty that President Obama negotiated while in office um, expires. Uh, in February. And instead of working with Russia to extend that treaty for another five years, which is which is allowed, uh, President Trump is stalling. Um, because as we've seen, this administration does not like arms control, does not like treaties in general, and is trying as in any way that it can to get out of agreements, whether they be the Iran nuclear deal or the INF treaty. Um, and in this case, the administration is Uh, trying to stall on the treaty and hiding behind the excuse of wanting to get China into the process. Um, There's nothing wrong with trying to start a a dialogue with China on arms control, Uh, but there's a lot wrong with refusing to extend New START until China gets involved because China has an arsenal that's about one-twentieth the size of the US and Russian arsenal. So expecting them to join the talks now is simply unrealistic. Uh, and we're missing a golden opportunity to extend New START. So the simplest thing uh, President Trump could do, and if not President Trump, then the next president, would be to extend the New START treaty so we continue the arms control process that has been going on with bipartisan por- support for the last 50 years.
2: Uh, Lily, let's say one other thing there, that the nearly the whole book is dealing with Convincing people this danger is real, and it involves no less in than a threat to civilization. But the last chapter in the book is different. The last chapter is very positive. It lays out: here are ten things we can do, any one of which would reduce that danger, and there any one of which is is it can readily be accomplished if we just decide to do it. So there is that positive side of the book, and in, in case. Somebody reads the book and doesn't get to the last chapter, let me
1: urge you to get to that chapter, because that describes what it is we should be doing and how to do it. And the last recommendation of the last chapter is to elect a committed president, because we both know through long experience that unless the president is committed to making these changes, uh, they will simply not (laughs) happen.
2: And but that is a necessary but not a sufficient condition. We also had to have the public educated so the President can get some support for doing the things that, for example, President Obama tried to do but was unsuccessful in doing
0: and and so I mean, besides writing the book, which is again accessible and certainly one that many members of the public could read and and understand it's it's not um a a complicated sort of argument. it's a pretty straightforward argument um are are the two of you um advocating to congress these days are you on a book tour in our in our quarantined life
2: <laughs> uh, let me start off by saying that yes to all those questions uh, but the book tour is a virtual book tour but but secondly um i've also come up with a podcast which will be which was launched just a few weeks ago and is available to anybody who wants to read it, by going to our website. So this podcast is called "At the Break," and it's inti- intended to in- educate the public in language that they can understand about nuclear dangers what what to do with them. So it's a, it goes hand in hand with the book in terms of a way of educating the public. Tom, over to you.
1: So, in addition to uh, a speaking tour, uh, to speaking on as many events like this as possible. Uh, We're also engaging directly with Congress um, because and 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 and, you know, potentially the next president, uh, because, uh, for example, the Biden campaign is looking for ideas of what to do on nuclear policy and Congress is looking for ideas. I mean, I think everyone understands that the next president is going to be dealing with uh, a different country. Right. I mean, we the coronavirus is still raging strong it has wreaked havoc on the economy. Uh, It has caused the deficits and the debts to explode and has created um, this protest situation we're seeing across the country uh, where the economic uh, and racial disparities are just huge. And so the question becomes, where are we going to find the money to address all these problems? Uh, One place to go is to look at the defense budget, which we feel has been focused on the wrong threats, uh, has been focused on On great power competition, on endless wars, uh, and not on the dangers that we see are real today, whether they be pandemics uh, or climate change uh, or or outdated nuclear policies that make it more likely that we'll stumble into war. So, we are hopeful uh, that the next president and the next Congress will find a way to reorient uh, defense policies and defense budgets to bring greater attention to the threats that we haven't been focused on and to reduce funding for some of the nuclear weapon systems that we see are most dangerous.
0: And so I would love to thank the two of you for joining me today to talk about these threats and and possibly some ways of changing the the situation so that we don't have the same kind of sort of potential for stumbling into or being in a capacity to have a first strike. Um, I'd like to thank former secretary of defense, William Perry and director of uh, policy at Plowshares, Tom Colina for talking to me today about the button, the new nuclear arms race and presidential power from Truman to Trump. This is published by Ben Bella publications in 2020. And of course you can also listen to the new podcast at the brink, um, that also discusses this. Thank you both for joining me today.
2: And thank you, Lily, for your thoughtful questions. Thank you for having us.